Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Well, she's back on the podcast, and she's the writer of Why We Love Pirates. And the hunt for Captain Kids and how how we change piracy forever. And she's also available in a new book about Anne Bunny and Mary, which she just told me it's going to be the first biography about Anne Bunny and Mary, which I'm very excited about. The first book was excellent, and I highly recommend everyone to read it if after you finish this episode. And please do go back and listen to the first episode she was on. I don't remember specific, but it's down there, it's somewhere in the podcast. And we're not going to go through today. We're going to talk about a very fun pirate, Steed Bonnet. And uh, if you you may, if the name sounds familiar, it's because of this new title of a TT series, which of course is Satyr, but we don't need to take a look at it. How accurate is it so far from the episodes that we've seen? And we don't need to take out of the real life of uh, of this so-called gentleman pirate. And just the name itself, what is it about this pirate, specific pirate that is making it sound kind of different from other pirates? So Steve Bonnet is quite a different pirate because he wasn't he wasn't really a pirate in that he had no maritime experience he was never a sailor mm. he grew up in barbados he was the son of a very wealthy plantation owner and he gets married he has kids he takes over the plantation and then one day he up and decides he doesn't want to be a plantation owner or husband or father anymore and he decides to become a pirate so, but here's the thing, if you're going to be a pirate, you're usually, you're stealing a ship and, you know, you're stealing goods and you're dividing them up amongst the crew. What he does is he pays to have a ship built for him. He hires a crew and then he pays the pirates wages. So even if they aren't stealing anything, they're still getting money, but this is not a practice that's normally done on pirate ships. So as a result, pirates generally don't respect him because no self-respecting pirate is going to buy a boat, pay, you know, pay wages. Although his pirates didn't mind they were getting wages, but they also, he was incompetent. He didn't know how to sail. He didn't know how to navigate. He would make bad decisions. So he was definitely, he was definitely a very unique pirate in that sense. So you would say that Taika Waititi got his characteristic fairly accurate then? Yes, yes. So I haven't watched all the episodes yet, but I've seen the first three. And from what I've seen is that he's done a great job with the details, not just about Steed Bonnet, but life on the pirate ship in general and what the culture was like and what it would have been like when they got to Nassau, which they do, I think, in the third episode. There's so much great detail that I won't lie. I was quite surprised at how Mm. impressed I was with the show. Mm. And of course, I don't want to talk more about it later, but let's talk about the early life of Steve Bonnet. And what's, what is his early life like as we, 
And how and how do we know? Is it documented well when his life? His early life isn't isn't documented very well. Um, lots of pirates' early lives are not, so we don't know very much about his early life, except that he's from Barbados and he was, you know, plant son of a wealthy plantation owner, and he was always set from birth basically that he was going to inherit it at some point. You know, he had this duty; he had to get married. He would have to have children, you know, have to have heirs for this plantation and keep it going. Mm -hmm. So he was from, he was a very wealthy person, you know, growing up in Barbados, though, he would have had a lot of exposure to the sailing community because of so much trade coming in and out. And being a plantation owner, you're cultivating, excuse me, you're cultivating goods mm -hmm. in order to, you know, to sell to merchants. So he would have had a lot of this exposure no matter what, but he himself was never going to be destined to be a sailor or a merchant, even if that's what he wanted. I believe what we were talking about in the previous episode when he first came on the podcast is that most pirates were privateers who were laid off after this. I believe the Spanish succession, or the Spanish succession, and they became pirates when they didn't have an employee, employer anymore. So they were quite experienced in the sea already, as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. The vast majority of pirates during the time period when he was a pirate which is about 1713 to about 1730. This is the time period, not when he was a pirate. He was a pirate from about 1717 to 1719. This is the time period where most of the really infamous pirates that we know about, such as Benjamin Hornigold, Edward Teach, or known as Blackbeard, Charles Vane, Jack Rackham, they were all veterans of the War of Spanish Succession. They all sailed with each other. They all fought together. And they all, even if they didn't know each other during the war, they would know of each other because they would probably have mutual acquaintances in Nassau, which was the big pirate community in the Caribbean. It's uh, located on the island of Providence within the Bahamas. And it was known unofficially as the Pirate Kingdom because it was so frequented by pirates. So, you know, as we know, you don't know much about this early life, but do you have a certain idea about what it was like for someone growing up in a plantation and going to take over the plantation eventually, what it was like for those, like for those kids that we can draw a kind of similar conclusion that could be the life that he had? Yeah, so a life um, knowing that you're going to be taking over a plantation is probably pretty high pressured. As a young child, he would have been educated. He would have to be educated well. So he probably had a private tutor who would educate him in all things. It, it probably, sorry, he would have had a private tutor that probably educated him very much in the classical or traditional style of education which included being able to, of course, read and write and do mathematics, but he would also learn about natural philosophy. Mm -hmm. He would have studied a lot of the Greek and Roman classics. He would have studied probably logic and philosophy and theology, um, which is very, very standard. But also he would have been working with alongside his father or the managers of the plantation, looking how to go, learning how to go over accounts, and do calculations. And he probably had to be out in the fields quite often to learn how to supervise and understand the trade and the cultivation. So he wouldn't have had a typical childhood. Although to be fair, most children <laughs> during that time period did not have what we would think about, think of as a typical childhood where you play and have fun. Mm. That definitely would not have been his experience. He's basically being treated like a young adult in training to take over this plantation and have and really take over his very high status that he was born into. Hmm. So when did they, when these kids 
when did it consider that they were coming of age at this point? When was marriage arranged? And usually, at, as was the norm in this time, when was this coming about? It varied. So oftentimes marriages were arranged when children were quite young, especially if you were from a very kind of wealthy family. Mm-hmm. So uh, and, uh, and marriages weren't, for the most part, they weren't for love. It was to unite a family, oftentimes for business mm-hmm. or economic reasons or political reasons. In this case, of course, it probably would have been a, a, an economic reason, you know, unite two plantation families together. So marriage for love wasn't really a factor. If you're lucky, you would learn to love your partner, or at the very least, you would like them. Usually, if these were done at a young age, you could probably be expected to get married as a teenager. Of course, you know, once the girl, you know, enters childbearing age after adolescence, probably somewhere between the ages of 16 and 20. uh, In that range, I think is when uh, the majority of people in his social class would probably get married probably a bit older he would have been in his 20s and she would have been in her teens that was very standard because he had to take the time in order to really kind of take over the plantation or at the very least have his own property already before he could actually have his wife so he would have been in his early 20s maybe even mid 20s she would have been in her um, mid to late teens was he an intelligent person in a sense not necessarily by sea but you know, on, la- on land at least was it was it somewhat intelligent there in the management in like you said was reading greek and roman classics was he was he an intelligent person he was yes he was a very intelligent very intellectual person he was very well read he was known to read you know all the classics he loved kind of reading about a lot of adventures, especially from the classical world, because that's how, where he was educated in. And if you read Greek and Roman classics, there are loads of tales about, um, you know, things that happen at sea. A lot of the, a lot of the uh, mythology takes place at sea. So he wouldn't have. I mean, obviously, most of the stuff, a lot of the book takes place in sea. Yeah, a lot of them would, and and he, but he was very well read, and he loved to read. He was known on his ship. To have a very large library, which mm. is also really unusual for a which is, which is portrayed in the show as well. That he... it is. This is a detail I was very impressed with. You know, they show him in his cabin with a whole bunch with, with walls, Florida, Florida ceiling mm. walls of books. And this is what Steve Bonnet had in his ship. So how is it the happy marriage that he's married into? Because in the show, I don't know if you've gotten this far and don't remember the episode, but it doesn't seem to be a very happy marriage in the that's the show portrayed. And is it wasn't mm-hmm. like that in real life that it was it was a miserable marriage to say the least. We, well, we don't really quite know how his marriage was. Um, you know, just, it, in general, hopefully the marriage would have been cordial. You know, hopefully they would have been kind to each other. Sometimes, you know, mar- these marriages, of course, would not go well. They might not be a good match. There could be, you know, it could be that the only relationship they had would just simply be to bear children and that was it and then once the wife had you know a suitable amount of kids that survived childhood then their physical relation might stop in terms of steve bonnet um we don't really know what his marriage was like but according to captain charles johnson who wrote the book a general history of the pirates it said that he was dissatisfied and he sort of took i'm paraphrasing here but he had kind of a what charles johnson sort of referred to trouble in his mind um, that made him one day decide to change his mind. And, you know, and we can't explain mm. why. And today, I, you know, today we might refer to that as a midlife crisis, mm. honestly. Yes. 
So how does Jordan Bauer build a new ship? Is it, does he do it in secret from his wife? Is it suddenly like, I'm going to become a pirate and I'm going to build my first build my ship and then I'm going to set the sail? Or does he just buy a ship then and there? Or how, how does Jordan Bauer do that? He goes about to, um, he goes, to, I, I think he goes to the main city in Barbados, which I believe is, Bridge, is Bridgetown. And what he would have done is he would have hired a carpenter or a shipwright. And these are the people who build ships. And he would have paid um, them to build him a really large ship because he's very wealthy. He can afford it. And while the ship is being built, he's probably recruiting sailors in local taverns because that is where sailors went while they were on land having a break and also to find out information for a new sailing job in case the one they had was over. So this is where he'd go and he'd recruit people and probably was like, you know, we're going to, we're not going to work for anybody. We're going to work for ourselves. We're basically going to be pirates. We're going to have adventures. We're going to get rich. I'm going to pay you all a salary. I'm going to pay you all very well. I have a ship being built. And so a lot of people probably would have looked at him like, okay, this guy doesn't really know what he's doing. A sailor can tell right away if you don't have any proper sailing experience. Mm -hmm. So a lot of them knew that this could be quite risky, but at the same time, they're like, okay, well, it looks like we will be getting some job security. So that's why he was able to get pirates to sign or sailors to sign on with him to become pirates. Um, As for the ship, the ship is being built. It's very large and he names it the Revenge. So to try to give it like a big piratey name. So how, how does, does his first year and few months go as a pirate when his first set of sail? Is it what he expect or is it kind of, does it do any raids at all? It's not quite what he expects. So initially they don't have very many successes. He doesn't really quite know which ships to go after and he doesn't really have much, much experience attacking. So this is left to his sailors to kind of sort of take over this role. So like kind of the first, you know, the first several months, they don't have very much luck until they finally come upon a large Spanish galleon, which he insists that they have to attack. But actually, a lot of his crew don't really support this very much because they're not quite sure if they could take on a large Spanish galleon. But they do. Steve Bonnet insists. And sure enough, it's there isn't really a winner or a loser in this. The pirates don't really get much, um, but instead their ship gets very heavily damaged in the battle against the Spanish. And Steve Bonnet himself is severely injured in this battle, severely injured in the leg. Um, and it's very possible he um, almost didn't survive the injury. It left him lame for the rest of his life. Uh, that's how bad the injury was. And from there, they decide to head on to Nassau, which has become known as kind of the place where pirates go. It would be a place to repair the ship. It would be a place to, you know, replenish their goods and sort of figure things out, maybe join up with other pirates. That's So that's kind of how the first year for the most part went. So so talk about the time in Nassau. What did they do when they first arrived at Nassau? Do they, do they have any account of that? We don't have very many details about what he did in Nassau, but what we do know is that that is where he met Edward Teach, who would become known popularly as Blackbeard. And uh, Edward Teach surprisingly decides to team up with Steve Bonnet. Now, Edward Teach's career is complete opposite. He was a veteran of the War of Spanish Succession. He was the quartermaster for Benjamin Hornigold. So he was kind of Benjamin Hornigold's number two 
right-hand man protege. So he had loads of experience and he was trained up by a brilliant captain. And to the point where when Hornigold retired, he gave Blackbeard his own ship and Blackbeard was able to become a pirate on his own after the war ended. And he already had a pretty good reputation. And when I say pretty good, I mean popular reputation as being pretty quite- bad for the British. Right. Yeah. And, you know, he would sail up and down the eastern seaboard of North America and he would plunder loads of ships, you know. Um, and so he decides to team up with Steve Bonnet, mostly because Steve Bonnet is extremely wealthy. And this is why Steve, um, he's so Steve Bonnet is known as the gentleman pirate because he dressed in the finest clothes possible and he was very educated. When does uh, this, when, I wanted to ask about that. So well, as you mentioned, when does he get the reputation as the gentleman pirate? Does he invent the term himself or is it people who... I, I don't know when the term would have been referred to. I think um, it, I think he's referred to that in Captain Charles Johnson's A General History of the Pirates, but I'm not sure if Johnson came up with that term himself or if that's how he was colloquially known. But that, of course, is how we refer to him. It's possible that people called him the gentleman pirate, and I don't think it would have been a compliment. It probably would have been a bit of like a backhanded compliment, you know, maybe to his face, but it was really meant to be kind of an insult. Mm. But Blackbeard sees a good opportunity, though, because he sees that Bonnet is very wealthy. And, you know, with the repairs, Bonnet does have a very good ship. It's very large and he has a substantial crew. And with this, Blackbeard knows he can create a small fleet of his own. And he knows that Steve Bonnet being kind of incompetent, he could be, you know, it could be easy for Blackbeard to take a lot of control away from him. So which is what, what he does. He was able to use Steve Bonnet as a to try to get, get control himself in other words right exactly so basically what he kind of does is you know he tells steve bonnet you know i'm in charge i'm the captain of this fleet but you can still be in charge of your own ship but what happened is that steve bonnet was sort of captain just in title only all of his you know respect and authority as a captain kind of went away because a lot of his crew actually preferred to sail with blackbeard so a lot of his crew sort of jumped ship and went on to blackbeard's ship called the queen anne's revenge so you know steve bonnet wasn't very satisfied with this arrangement because he didn't feel he was being respected he felt that Blackbeard was taking his crew away from him and he was stripped of a lot of his own authority, but there wasn't anything he could do. So, because Blackbeard had so much control. So what does he do then? What, what is his options? What does it try? What is it trying to, does it try to leave Blackbeard? Or, and no, does it, he does not realize that he kind of need Blackbeard as, as well? He does. He needs Blackbeard because again, you know, Steve Bonnet, he has his injury, so he's not, exactly like in the best physical condition um he has a lot of his own wealth so he's able to kind of um, help finance a lot of what they're doing so in that way he manages to play a pretty good role in uh what he's doing but you know he doesn't really have any place to go he knows that because so much of his crew is more loyal to blackbeard that he couldn't leave the fleet anyways because he wouldn't have enough people sailing with him to command his ship and he also at this point knows that he can't attack any ships on his own and he's going to need someone who's going to be more experienced with another powerful ship so no he's kind of really sort of stuck in this situation you know he isn't happy about it but it's better than the alternative and again i'm gonna refer a lot to the show here so in the but in the show you see them kind of become friends ish i suppose mm -hmm. do, do they become friends in real life as well or is they, that more fiction 
Initially they are, yes. Um, and, you know, like I said, Blackbeard sees a really good opportunity with Steve Bonnet. So he wants, you know, to, them to have mutual respect and get along. And he likes that Steve Bonnet has a lot of resources and the ship. So initially, yes, that they were friends. But as time went on, when Blackbeard realized how incompetent Bonnet really was as a sailor or, and as a pirate, Blackbeard's opinion of him dropped very, very quickly. Mm. Uh, to the point where Blackbeard wasn't going to want to work with Steve Bonnet anymore. Mm. So does it try to train him as an innocence or does it try to make him become a competent sailor from being in incompetence? Yeah, so what he does finally is Black, so here's the problem. They've been, they have been raiding a lot of ships and this is about 1718, I think. Um, Blackbeard um, has realized that they've become too recognizable with, um, you know, the Queen Anne's Revenge is very large. You know, he's become associated with it. He's sailing with another ship, also with someone who just doesn't really know what he's doing. And Blackbeard feels like he's more of a hindrance than a help. So what Blackbeard decides to do is he, is they kind of go onto the coast of North Carolina, off the coast of Ocracoke, which is kind of an island off the coast of North Carolina. They've just had some pretty good wins. Um, they've, robbed some ships they were successful and so Blackbeard kind of says like you know hey let's celebrate and so a lot of the pirates including Steve Bonnet they get rip-roaringly drunk as they're drinking all the wine and alcohol that they have stolen and in the meantime Blackbeard has actually come up with a plan between him and 40 of his favorite uh, pirates and what they do is Blackbeard goes inland because he heard that the governor of North Carolina was offering a pardon to any pirate who turned themselves in and named um, any accomplices. So Blackbeard decides to take a pardon because he needs to lie low, then he won't be charged for his crimes. And what he does is he betrays Steed Bonnet. And so Blackbeard and his 40 fellow pirates that he's chosen you know, go inland. And in the meantime, Steed Bonnet and the rest of the pirates wake up on the beach to find themselves all arrested. So it was a huge betrayal. Actually, I want to ask and go back a little bit because I'm curious about it. Was was it kind of normal that people like Steve Bonnet or any kind of middle or lower class would kind of run away from the family to start a life at sea, how it better life for themselves necessarily? Was it that uncommon or was Steve an exception? Um, that's a good question. I think it, it, it's interesting because it's kind of a case by case basis. A lot of pirates did have families and, you know, it could have been assumed that Steve Bonnet was doing what a lot of pirates did, you know, going at sea for a certain period of time and plan to go home quite wealthy um, because that is what a lot of pirates did. They would go, they'd be a pirate for about a year or two, maybe. And then if they survived it, they would go home pretty, you know, if not wealthy, they would come home very comfortable financially to really help out their family. Now, Steve Bonnet being someone who abandoned his family as a plantation owner, I mean, I can't say how people would have reacted to this, but I imagine that there would have been a lot of people, including his crew, who wouldn't understand why he was giving up such a wealthy, respected, and to them, easy life. Because the vast majority of pirates who had initially been sailors 
came from very poor and working class backgrounds where they didn't really have other opportunities besides going to sea, which they did at a young age um, until they might turn pirate for various reasons. So many probably would have been quite confused as to why he made this decision. And it possibly could have been a reason why maybe they wouldn't fully respect him. You know, what person might want to leave that? He's too soft. He doesn't know hard work. He's never really had to work at sea. So I think it would have been quite mixed here. So, okay, let's go back to the pardon. Um, and do, do Blackbird get to keep the dust that is stole, or is that confiscated to the when they take the pardon? Sorry, can you say that one more time? Yeah, uh, does Blackbird get to keep the dust that is stole when he gets the pardon, or does he have to? Is that confiscated when? Oh, so no, Blackbeard is able to keep his goods. This is one of the conditions of the pardon is that if they turn themselves in and name their accomplices, then they're able to keep their goods. Now, not all pirates were lucky to actually have this happen. Sometimes their goods were confiscated anywhere, but it appears that Blackbeard was allowed to keep his goods because he gave up such a huge number of pirates, including another pirate captain. So Blackbeard would have been able to keep his goods. So if you ratted enough people out, you would be able to keep the goods anyway. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah, it was because it was seen, it, it was worth it to them. Mm. So there wasn't any more code like in the in a mafia mafiosi that if you ratted out, you were kind of a dead man, or it wasn't like it wasn't like that in, in the pirate times. A lot of pirates uh there it's interesting because you know there Hmm. It's a good question. A lot of pirates wouldn't rat each other out because of loyalty to each other. But at the same time, there were a lot of pirates who did take a pardon. And the reason for this is because it, it could be hard being a pirate. You know, at some point, a lot of pirates might realize that their life was unsustainable and they knew that they could be in danger at any point and probably wouldn't survive. And if they were able to take a pardon, then it's like getting a clean slate and they could all um you know have their records erased and start over and get more legitimate work maybe as a privateer or something like that or some would become pirate hunters but what's interesting is about that's what happened to horridol right he became a pirate hunter in the end who did horridol Yes. Yeah. Benjamin Hornigold actually did become a pirate hunter, which was quite interesting. You know, a lot of people didn't really um, expect that, um, but he wasn't a pirate hunter for very long because Benjamin Hornigold was uh, killed, I think, possibly in a storm. We're not too sure. But yes, he did become a pirate hunter and there were lots of privateers who became pirate hunters as well. Um, so but what's interesting is that about half of all pirates who took a pardon would go back into piracy at some point. There was, was there a second chance to get the pardon that one or was it like if you go back there is no no there's no pardon again you can you can you're gonna get hanged if you get caught i can't say for sure but i'm pretty certain based on the research i've done and what i read and what i read that if a pirate ended up breaking the, the terms of their pardon that they would not get a second chance because mm -hmm. if they did that once they're definitely going to do that again so what happens to steve bonnet when he's found struck well, we went a little bit astray there, but what, what happened to Steve Bonnet when he is waking up and he's found surrounded by the British army? So Steve Bonnet is arrested, just like everybody else. And somehow Steve Bonnet manages to escape. 
Um, he manages to escape prison. We're not quite sure how, but he does it. And when I, th- I thought you said that, that that didn't happen in the last episode that people hard, did hardly ever escape prison when I thought you said there, it, there was no it's rare. record. That's why it's rare. And that's why it's interesting that Steve Bonnet managed to do this. So we don't know how, maybe he bribed some guards. You know, this is what Bonnet did when he was arrested. He'd be very much like, hey, I'm wealthy, I'm educated. I'm a plantation owner. I'd never do this again. I have a very, I come from a very well-respected background and sometimes, you know, hoping that could work in his favor. But he was still in prison, but we're not sure how, but he did manage to escape. He probably had help. But what we do know is that he escaped and he actually went back into pirating. He um, became a pirate again. But I I actually want to ask this before we don't move on. And I kind of want to draw to the mafiosi again with this, because as we know, at least in the movies, the mafiosi had a better life in jail. Was this the same for wealthy plantation owners if they were arrested? That they did have, like Steve Bonnet, they could have a better life in jail even when they get arrested because of their wealth and their connections? Yes, they would have a better time in jail because they could afford it. Um, in, in prison, if you wanted better food, if you wanted alcohol, if you wanted extra provisions, such as maybe some extra clothes or blankets or something, you or your family had to be able to pay for it. And most of the time, a lot of people who are put into prison probably couldn't afford most of that. Whereas if you were wealthy, well, one, if you were very wealthy, it was very rare for you to go to prison in the first place. Um, if they were able to, someone like Steve Bonnet would have been able to afford anything he wanted. He probably could have gotten his own cell on his own. He would have been allowed to be able to purchase clothing and anything he wanted. He probably could have even had some of his own books with him. Um, being very wealthy, he would have had a much nicer time in prison, you know, as nice as you can ever have in prison. Um, but it would, it, it's him being arrested as someone very wealthy coming from a high status background. That was very much the exception to the rule. But pirates were generally not given any leniency. So he would, that's why he was still imprisoned anyways, but he would have been able to afford to have some of these extra uh, privileges. So what happened to the revenge when he got caught? Was it confiscated or was it, was it did, it, did they destroy the revenge or does it get it I'm back? Actually, I'm actually not sure what happened to the revenge. He did not get it back. So it was most likely confiscated and probably sold to somebody, or maybe it was dismantled and they sold the parts to other shipwrights. We don't have any archaeological evidence or anything from the revenge today. Yeah, it wasn't shipwrecked. We do know that. Like it's not, it didn't crash, it didn't sink. So we don't really have like any archaeological digs for it. So so with this even escaping, how does it go? Does it try to find some crew or are they hanged or does it go about finding a new crew? And, and another thing I wanted to know is, as he knows that he's quite wealthy, so how does it get his fortune? Does it have it, have it on the ship or does it just kind of draw right checks? How, the, how did that work back in the day when he just abandoned the plantation? Um, how does he manage to keep his fortune and be able to pay the sailors? Uh, he would have brought... He would have brought money with him. He probably he he would have brought money with him either in cash or in the form of of some sort of banknote. Um, most likely, he would have brought it in cash. And I feel like, from what I remember, I think we even see that in one of the first episodes that he has cash on hand, 
unless I'm imagining, unless I have, that's a false memory, but um, he would have had like, the cash on him. He probably em um, emptied some bank accounts. I think there's some idea that he left his wife in very, in, you know, a pretty bad situation because mm. he took so much money with him, but we don't know what happened to his family. There's no spin of the year. Yeah. So like we said, how does the job on about getting a new crew? Does he, is it's an old crew hand at this point? Um, there are members of his crew that would that were hanged, and then there were some that were um, hanged later. Now, Bonnet himself, we're not even quite positive, but he managed to uh, join another crew. I don't think he was, I think he may have even become captain again, because he'd been a captain once before. Um, but he's not, and he even manages to attack another couple of ships, but he's not successful for long. He's eventually going to get arrested off the coast of, of South Carolina and put in prison there. And while he's in prison in South Carolina, he actually writes directly to the governor. You know, he's writing letters to the mm -hmm. governor saying, you know, hey, I've got, I'm a very wealthy, respected gentleman um, in Barbados. There will be people who speak for me. Um, I'm very high status. You know, he was kind of counting on his high status as a plantation mm -hmm. owner to prevent him from being executed, but it didn't work. The governor didn't answer his letters um, or anything like that. So Steve Bonnet would eventually would be hanged in South Carolina. But before I'd like, I want to talk a little bit more about his returning to to see you. Does he get more respect now that he is has has somewhat somewhat experience of piracy, or is he still oh, not respected? I, at, I, he, I don't think. I don't think he would have had the same amount of respect as other pirates would. Um, he probably had a reputation. It's a small community. People talk. People would have learned about him at Nassau. Um, and, but I think the fact that, it, but the idea though that he managed to escape prison um, probably did gain him some respect. Like, look what he was able to do. And, and yeah, so, but again, he managed to, I'm not positive if he became captain again, um, but he was at the very least able to have a high position. I'm pretty certain just because the way he was executed and how famous he was, that he was made a captain again, or at the very least, he still had the title because he'd been captain before. So he would have been known as for whether or not he was respected. That's a, that I, I am honestly not really sure. Do the other pirates consider him a coward kind of, any kind of hinting to this, but when he's arrested and then he manages to escape, that they think he bribed himself to have certain, do they grudge, not grudge, but do they kind of consider him a coward for this? I, again, I can only speculate because we don't know how the other pirates are feeling, but what I imagine is they probably did not like the fact that he was trying to bribe his way out of his punishment and trying to get special treatment. You know, nobody really likes it when someone thinks they can get special treatment. Um, so I guess so I'm pretty certain that people felt very similarly towards Bonnet. And in the end, you know, it's proven Bonnet was no better than anybody else. You know, he still got treated the same and he was still executed with other pirates. So he didn't even get his own singular, uh, uh, he didn't even get his own singular execution. He had a trial just like all other pirates did. It was very publicized, it was published. It's a very detailed trial that actually tells us a lot about um, what pirates are like. So, you know, he did get kind of special attention for that. And that is again, because of his wealth and um, how unusual it was for someone like him to become a pirate.
Is it because of the trial that becomes so famous that it is? Or really? Yeah, he, it's, it's two things. It's one, it's the fact that he sailed with Blackbeard, who was a very famous pirate uh, already. And then uh, because of his pirate trial, because of how detailed it was. And it was published cheaply and it was very widely circulated. Does he have a grudge against Blackbeard for, for abandoning him? And betraying, betraying him? Yeah, probably. I think Steve Bonnet was very, uh, very upset about that. Uh, you know, no one wants to be betrayed. Mm. And I think you add, like, he absolutely was probably furious and shocked. And, uh, you know, who knows? He would have been all of these things. So let's talk about the trial. As you mentioned, it's quite detailed. So they try to go into the trial. How long does it last? What, what's in, where is it in London? Is it in the Caribbean? It's in Charleston, South Carolina where he was uh, captured and put into prison um, or just off the coast, South Carolina. It was in Charleston. The trial itself, I believe, only lasted for a few days. Um, pirate trials generally didn't last that long. They weren't a long drawn out process. They were mostly kind of a formality because pirates were assumed guilty uh, when they came into court. So he was, he was already presumed guilty. And so a lot of it, again, it was just for show because legally everybody deserved, you know, everyone was um, supposed to get a trial. Um, to try to defend themselves. But so that's what Bonnet would have had. But the trial itself didn't last long, just a few days. Can you afford a a decent lawyer at at this point in time, or was it bankrupt? Usually people didn't really hire their lawyers at the time. They were usually people who already worked for the court um, and they would be there to represent. But for the most part, a lot of pirates, you know, they a lot of criminals and pirates, they had to represent themselves for the most part. So um, they didn't really get defense lawyers at the time. There might be some lawyers who might help them and speak for them a little bit, but in general, people, especially pirates, you know, they had to really speak for themselves. And then it was a case with Steve Bonnet as well, there was no exception. Yeah, yeah, yeah no exception. So does he it get hanged? He was being treated like any other pirate. So would it get hanged relatively quickly or was it that kind of death like that throughout the day that it's so many years of waiting until or is it like the second day day you found guilty you're hanged or generally for the most part um in uh, british law which was um put in place in the caribbean and in north america when they were um, when they had to kind of implement British criminal law. Uh, generally, I believe if someone was going to be ex- uh, executed, if they were sentenced to that, it had to be done within 28 days. But if you were a pirate, it had to be done within 10 days. So the execution would have happened pretty quickly after that. So on, on the scale from one arg to 10 args, how would you rate, uh, how would you rate uh, Steve Bunnett's career and legacy? Um, in, uh, tell me, tell me. From one arg to 10 args. Oh, one arg to 10 (laughs) args. Okay. So in terms of like his, uh, ability as a pirate, I would give him a five and I'm being a bit generous because, you know, it takes guts just to be a pirate. Mm. Um, and the fact he was able to sail with Blackbeard and managed to escape prison, I give him props for that. So Mm. as a pirate, five args in terms of his legacy, I would probably give him, um, you know, initially beforehand, I would have given him maybe like a seven or an eight because he was really only famous because he sailed with Blackbeard. But with the show now, um, depending on how popular it becomes, you know, um, 
it'll, that'll raise his profile. But what's interesting is a lot of people ask like, oh, have asked me, have you heard of the show? It's about a pirate. I'm like, yeah, Steve Bonnet. Mm -hmm. And they're like, is he a real pirate? And I'm like, and I say, yes, he is a real pirate. And a lot of people are surprised. So I don't think very many, um, as many people know who Steve Bonnet was as we think. So um, in terms of ARG for him, I would probably give him a seven. I actually was, had to load it up because I wasn't even sure myself when I found out and I was quite surprised that he was actually a real person. So that's what I was like, I'm going to make an episode about this guy. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's a really, it's really fun. And if people want to read more about Steve Bonnet, there's a book I can recommend. I think it's called The Life and Trials of the Gentleman Pirate and it's by Jeremy Moss who wrote um, a book about Steve Bonnet. So that would, that's a, that would be a good book for people to read if they want to learn more. Hmm. I was, I was actually going to ask, but you kind of already answered it, but uh, as we've seen in the show, it was, uh, he does have a biographer with him and, a, and a his, sort of, I was historian. Yeah. Did they have that in, in, in real life as well? Did he have sort no. of right? No, they didn't. That's something I found really funny because the the person writing about him, I remember kind of thinking, oh, he's probably based on Captain Charles Johnson, who wrote a general history of the pirates. Mm. Um, so I found that to be quite funny. And I feel like, you know, in terms of how they're trying to understand Steve Bonnet's character, who wants to be seen as respected and everything, it, it you know, it kind of, it's funny. And I'm like, yeah, for the show, I believe that he would have someone do that. Um, but he, no, he wouldn't, that wouldn't have happened in real life. Pirates did not keep records. Or if they did keep records, they were usually destroyed. So, well, another, of course, we got asked, what would you rate the show that you've seen so far? And what, what can we expect to see in the show in the future? Spoiler alert, if you don't, <laughs> if you don't want to know what happens in, in real, real life television on the show. So I really enjoy the show. And, you know, as a pirate historian, I've been telling people like, yes, definitely watch it. It's funny. It's silly. Um, you know, it's not always, it's not all that correct all the time. They dramatize things and make things funny for the show but it's, um, they get lots of details about pirate life that I, th I think is really interesting. They even have a woman disguised as a man on the ship. You and think that's kind of a reference to Mary Ann as uh, she did kind of say? It's possible that it could be a reference to female, to Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed. But what I like to think is that this is someone who represents the fact that there were probably a lot more women disguised as men on pirate ships than we think. Mm then we know they wouldn't have been either if they were if they weren't found out then it wouldn't have been recorded so um i really like that detail i like the detail of how diverse the ship is um because so you know all pirate ships were extremely diverse and so what we come to expect is you know he's going to be teaming up with blackbeard and i think we're going to be seeing all the major challenges and upsets he's going to have once he's with blackbeard kind of starting to see his reputation get usurped or his position getting usurped there's going to be a bit of a struggle of a power balance i think yeah, i think the so crew gonna... will abandon him in the series as well no, so i think they're going to abandon him i think you know probably because it's such a big deal that they that they do that they end up going for Blackbeard. I think it even shows. So sorry, the leaf blowers are here now. Um, I think you know they've already shown in the show in the very first episode that there are a lot of members of the crew who are pretty dissatisfied with what he's doing, anyways. And some people are even like, "Sorry about that." If you sorry, give me a second. <laughs> That's I'm sorry. Right. I'm going to I'm going to put it on this recording on pause, just five seconds. Yeah, so in terms of the show, what would you rate the show? 
I would give the show probably like an eight out of 10. And mm. I give it such a high score because one, it's really fun and it's well-written. And I also really enjoy all the little details that they get correct in terms of how a pirate ship operates. I feel like they understand what the character of Steed Bonnet should be like. And of course, things are dramatized for the show and they do get some things wrong um, here and there, um, which of course you're going to do in any show, which is why I'm taking off a couple of points. Mm. But overall, I think it's fun and I would recommend it to anyone, you know, even if, you know, whether or not you're interested in pirates, it's a fun show. And, you know, the show, the, the star of the show, Reese Davies, who plays Steve Bonnet, was on the show Fly of the Concords, and that has quite a cult following. As we know, Taika Waititi, who created the show and plays Blackbeard in the show, um, also has a very large following. So at the very least, if people don't know that they're involved in the show, hopefully now they do and they'll be interested. So and hopefully yeah, they find this episode eventually. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure to have you back and you're always welcome. Uh, um, back into the show at a time and uh, something I understand that we talked about that you get a new book published and when it'll be available because I, like we talked about in, before the recording it is earlier in the UK than the US because it's a publisher new UK publisher so when yep. when is it available in both UK slash Europe or US so um, I yes, I've got a new book coming out. It's called Pirate Queens, The Lives of Anne Bonnie and Mary Reed about the real life female pirates who sailed together. Um, it is so it's a full length biography and I believe it's probably the first full length biography about them. It comes out in the UK and Europe on the 21st of April and in the United States, it will come out on the 7th of July. And will it be different and, or similar to the first book? Just a question. It'll be quite different. It's quite different. It's um, being published by the publisher called Pen and Sword, and they focus on specifically publishing history. So my first book, you know, was meant to be a fun, you know, a very well researched, but, you know, a fun, very light, um, kind of funny read. This one is a bit more traditional. So, you know, I do take you know, I do like to have a little fun when I write. So there are lots of parts where it's very narrative, but it's um, a bit more serious in tone, but it's still very readable. When is it available to be pre-ordering your new book and well, what time can people purchase them? Where can people find the book if they wish to? It's already available for pre-order. You can go on Amazon or you can go directly to um, the Pen and Sword website and buy it directly from there. Um, it's available for pre-order in the UK, Europe, and also in the United States right now for mm. hardcover. Thank you so much for coming. And do you have any social media or any links you wish me to put in the description of where people can find you? I'm yes, um, I have a website, which is Rebecca-Simon.com, and you can find me on Twitter and you can find me on TikTok. So um, on Twitter, my username is Beckalex, B-E-C-K-A-L-E-X, and on TikTok, where I do daily pirate facts, it's uh, Pirate Beckalex, one word. Definitely recommend to follow on the boat and on Instagram as well. Oh yes, Instagram is the same as my TikTok handle, Pirate mm. uh, Pirate Beckalex. But I don't really do that, do much professional piratey <laughs> stuff on there. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. It's been a pleasure to have you on. This is my name is Alan. This has been Well That Age Twelve. We are available usually every Thursday. You can find us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcast, and wherever you can find our podcast. I would just like to say that our YouTube account just reached sixty nine subscribers. Very nice. <laughs> Excellent. So, so please consider rating us on Apple Podcasts as well. 
Thank you so much for listening. Please like, share, and subscribe. My name's Alan. I'll see you next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.